reads can you give on stupid and ignorant? <laughs> How many different faces can He's you make so to good. respond? So <laughs> good. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week we are taking a look at 2010's True Grit and Retributive Justice. And to do that, I have a uh, a return guest, I think is a light way to put it. He's here all the time. Uh, Michael Denniston for War Machine vs. Warhorse. Thanks for coming back once again. For a good movie, once again. Yeah, two. You've done two in the last month. I'm treating you way too nice. I gotta, I gotta figure out now like what music I have to play at the end of this episode since I did you a favor last time. I mean, I, I gotta keep that up. It's it's a lot to ask for me to be nice to you, but I just assume I'm gonna be bumped off of like the La La Land episode. Ooh, that would be brutal. Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> Uh, don't hey, give Mike, me those we ideas. really need someone for passengers, though. Please, come, I, I need you this week for passengers. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> uh, we all we all know what you're going to say about La La Land and Manchester by the Sea. La La Land is great. Manchester by the Sea made me cry because it's Kenneth Lonergan. I mean, that's that's we already know what's happening. <laughs> I had a joke there, but my dog interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they do that. So you, you want to tell your joke now? Here's your Here's your safe space, Mike. It was going to be a reference to Jack Horner and the type of films that he made where you just kind of have to sit in it. That's going to be my response to both Manchester by the Sea <laughs> and La La Land. There you go. But it's going to be so good that I'm going to just sit through it. You know, need new pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so uh, before we get started, uh, why don't you tell people about your podcast, which I'm sure they don't know about by now. After your, well, like, <laughs> 900th guest appearance on Pop Culture Case Study. Well, I'm sure that if you haven't listened at this point, you've ignored me for a good reason. So uh, we'll just uh, try to sell you on the aspect of it that sometimes I have interesting guests. <laughs> and I'm just an innocent bystander to these Skype calls where uh, we basically take a new release. So it would be like something like Manchester by the Sea. Uh, which Dave, I've just booked him to be on that episode for the two older films selected that share a common theme with the new release. So for that one, it would be like The Other Brother, and we're going to do HUD with Paul Newman and Rain Man, which me and Dave strangely talk about every other week, even though it's never the selected film. So you know what? I'm just going to compile all of our thoughts from previous appearances and episodes, and me and Dave won't even have to meet and talk to each other. Sew it all together. Done and done. We'll still call each other, but none of that will ever be ever be recorded and put online. And that's probably for the best. Yeah. Uh, so if that sounds something that appeals to you, something that shouldn't be online, which actually that's most of the internet, yeah. uh, you can <laughs> find story. the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, followingfilms.com, and I'm on Twitter at War Machine Horse. All right. So uh, True Grit 2010, uh, directed by the Coens, uh, and we're talking about retributive justice. So do you have a couple movie recommendations uh, to go with this viewing? Well, the funny thing with this um, and what I like about it is there there are a lot of these type of films uh, like um, – well, like Payback, 
Mel Gibson, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's men who have lost something uh, of something financial or, you know, what's a little more crude is they've lost like their wife or daughter. Like, I think there's a, I uh, own Kevin... this woman and you took her from me. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so actually the, the Mel Gibson thing was, uh, uh, a little more a progressive. <laughs> progressive, which is the only time we'll ever say that about Mel Gibson. But there was a uh, there's a Kevin Bacon one called Death Sentence, uh, and I was actually kind of wondering if you thought of something like True Grit, where it's flipped in that way, where it's not necessarily like you know a woman who can't defend herself who's been taken. Because the closest I came to is like Kill Bill, right? Tarantino yeah, I mean that's it. certainly the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, but still a little baby. Is, yeah. Killed slash kidnapped, you know, depending on which volume, spoiler alert, you're watching. <laughs> spoiler alert for Kill Bill, okay. Yeah, there's not that many movies that flip it like that. I think, for whatever reason, we're, we're not that comfortable with seeing women take charge in that way. I think it's it's weird. As far as we've come in certain areas, there's still this idea of, like, women are, be, are to be protected uh, by mm-hmm. the men, and now the men have to go get their revenge because this woman has been taken from them in one way or another. Which is something I really like about this version of True Grit is that we get we get something different, and we we get her taking charge instead of instead of vice versa. Um, so I can't think Kill Bill comes to mind right away, of course, but it's certainly I I wouldn't go as far as to call that progressive in the way it, it deals with gender politics necessarily. What about? Um... The Secret in Their Eyes, not the remake, but the original one, uh, kind of plays with that as far as the involvement of the women involved and also bringing in, I guess, law enforcement in a way, which uh, is a little bit more respectful than what we see here with Rooster. <laughs> a Cogbrand. little bit, a little bit. I, I was not a fan of the remake, but I did like the original Spanish film quite a bit. Wasn't, I think there, the wasn't there a Jodie Foster movie um, where her character was raped and then she goes to kind of take revenge on – the brave one. I yeah, the brave the one. Yeah, the brave ones. Yeah. yeah, that's the only thing I can really think of. It's very rare that we get that kind of movie. But there's but a new movie those... coming out this year, uh, L. Um, which okay. is, so maybe that will, maybe that will, uh, will kind of flip that on its head. And certainly looks like a movie that pushes boundaries and what I'm looking forward to at the end of the year. But but yeah, even um, even in mentioning all of those films. None of them are as matter of fact in what we see in right. True Grit, or as business like from a fourteen-year-old girl's perspective. There is no uh, sort of caterwauling, as I—that's <laughs> a great term. <laughs> I haven't got to use that term since the last Hunger Games movie because I always used it for that in Jennifer Lawrence's, you know, Oscar bait performance in a YA dystopian future. Fucking idiot, film podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> the same people that uh, are wondering why The Walking Dead never gets any Emmy love. <laughs> <laughs> and why John Goodman won't win the Oscar this year for 10 Cloverfield Lane. So, <laughs> Such a subtle, nuanced performance in that <laughs> alien invasion film. <laughs> I particularly liked you know, what it said about him. <laughs> When he grimaced or growled or threw something <laughs> or stomped around the compound. Yeah. Look, I know Al Pacino won for Sin of a Woman, but maybe that set a bad precedent <laughs> for Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyway, we're talking True Grit. I think we were attempting to. We were attempting. You were attempting to give us some recommendations. We haven't even started on the main review. Well, look, I just named I name checked a bunch of movies, good or bad. So <laughs> that's my version of this segment is little Russian roulette for the listeners. <laughs> take your pick. Good luck, Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Who knows? All right, so. We will take a break and then I'll talk about retributive justice and we'll bring Mike back to talk about True Grit. Most people know Stanley Kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh oh so wrong. wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right, hi, everybody. So time for the psychology section. So again, we're talking about retributive justice. Uh, so when you hear retributive, just think retribution. So it's a theory of justice that tells us that the best response to any crime is a proportionate punishment, and it's inflicted for its own sake and not to serve some outside social purpose like rehabilitation of the of the offender or deterrence of that crime moving forward. And I think you can see kind of where I'm going here if you've watched True Grit, uh, because I think in a lot of ways, our character of Maddie wants this retributive justice. She doesn't care if it stops other people from doing it. She just feels like it's deserved. So people believe in retributive justice say that when an offender breaks a law, justice requires that the criminal suffers in return. They also state that it differs from revenge because retributive justice is only directed at wrongs, has specific limits, isn't personal, and involves no pleasure at the suffering of others and employs certain standards. So this is where maybe Maddie goes a little bit further into revenge than retributive justice. But I think if you asked her, she would she might want to say it's not personal, but it really is about her dad. So in ethics and law, the fra- there's a phrase, let the punishment fit the crime. And it means that the severity of penalty for a wrongdoing should be reasonable and proportionate to the severity of the infraction. If you look at this movie, you know, it's kind of like an eye for an eye, death for a death. So this concept is common to many cultures all around the world and is actually shown in a lot of ancient texts. So it's present in the ancient Jewish culture uh, by the inclusion in the Law of Moses, uh, specifically in uh, two places, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and Exodus, and includes the punishments of life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And that phrasing also resembles something called the, the Code of Hammurabi. So lots of other documents reflect this in, in all world's cultures. However, the judgment of whether a punishment is appropriate severe can vary greatly between both cultures and individuals. So this idea of proportionality requires that the level of punishment be scaled relative to the severity of the original offending behavior. An accurate reading of the biblical phrase, an eye for an eye, is said to be only one eye for one eye, or an eye in place of an eye. But this doesn't mean that the punishment has to be equivalent to the crime. You don't have to do the same thing to to them. A retributive system will punish severe crime more harshly than minor crime, but retributives will differ about how harsh or soft the system should be overall. 
Now, traditionally, um, philosophers about punishment have contrasted retributivism with something called utilitarianism. So for utilitarians, punishment is forward-looking. It's justified uh, by its ability to achieve future social social benefits like crime reduction and and rehabilitation of the individual. But for people who believe in retributive justice, it's backward-looking. It's justified by the crime. So retributives look at what has been done, and utilitarians look at how this is going to affect the society moving forward. So depending on the person, if they're a retributivist, the crime's level of severity can be determined by the amount of harm, the unfair advantage, or moral imbalance the crime has caused. Okay, so in terms of history, in the early periods of all systems of code, the redress of wrongs takes precedence over the enforcements of rights. And we also talked about this existed in the Bible, so pretty ancient text there. In the 18th century, Immanuel Kant argued in something called Metaphysics of Morals that the only legitimate form of punishment the court can prescribe should be based on retribution and no other principle. He said, judicial punishment can never be used merely as a means to promote some other good for the criminal himself or for civil society, but instead it must in all cases be imposed on him only on the ground that he has committed a crime. Kant regards punishment as a matter of justice and must be carried out by the state for the sake of law, not for the sake of the criminal or even the victim. He argues that if the guilty are not punished, justice is not done. Further, if justice isn't done, then then the very idea of the law is completely undermined. So the principles behind retributive justice are threefold. One, people who commit certain kinds of wrongful acts or serious crimes morally deserve to suffer a proportionate punishment. Two, it is intrinsically morally good, good without reference to any other goods that might, might arise, if some legitimate punisher gives those who commit certain kinds of wrongful acts, the punishment they deserve. And three, it's morally impermissible intentionally to punish the innocent or to inflict disproportionately large punishments on wrongdoers. So I find that last part interesting, that it seems to be just as bad if you're punishing the innocent or if you're punishing someone too much. So there are two types of retributive justice. So the classical definition embraces, embraces this idea that the amount of punishment has to be proportionate to the amount of harm caused by the offense. Now, a more recent version, who's, which was advocated by philosopher Michael Davis, dismisses this idea. And they replace it with this, the idea that the amount of punishment must be proportionate to the amount of advantage gained by the wrongdoer. He introduced this version of retributive justice in the early 1980s at a time when it was making a resurgence within the philosophy of law community, um, perhaps due to the practical failings of what we call reform reform theory in the previous decades. So why wouldn't everyone believe in this? What are the criticisms? So many more jurisdictions following the retributive philosophy, especially in the United States, follow a set tariff where judges will impose a penalty for a crime within the range set by that tariff. As a result, some argue that judges don't have enough discretion to allow for these mitigating factors, which will lead to unjust decisions under certain circumstances. In the case of fines, the financial position of offender is not taken into account, leading to situations where an unemployed individual and a millionaire would would end up paying the same fine, which creates an unjust situation by itself. The fine would be way too punitive for the unemployed offender and not enough to punish the millionaire. 
In some countries, such as several in the European Union, fines are fixed as percentages of the offender's personal income rather than a certain monetary amount. That allows for the law to remain fair in that it applies to all citizens equally but prevents the super wealthy from simply paying to break the law without suffering substantial punishment. So this is a way, like, with retributive justice, you have to be careful. You can't just say, well, everyone should get the same punishment. It's automatically proportionate. You have to take the person into account as well. So as far as alternatives, traditional alternatives to retributive justice have been exile, which uh, declares the transgressor as an outlaw and shunning. In pre-modern societies, such sentences were basically the equivalent of death, as individuals would find it impossible to survive without the support and protection of the society they had wronged. Modern alternatives to retributive measures include psychiatric imprisonment, restorative justice, where you have to like do work um, to to kind of make up for what you've done and transformative transformative justice. Uh, one libertarian approach to this issue argues that the full restitution in the broad rather than the technical legal sense is compatible with both retributivism and a utilitarian degree of deterrence. So that's saying that like you can actually do both. Um, but I think that's a kind of myopic view of this situation. I think not every crime can both fit retributive justice and this utilitarian sense of justice as well. All right. So before we move on, I wanted to talk about the mental health effects of retributive justice. And there's actually a case, there was actually a paper done by Kira Lewandowski, Templin, among others, about the mental health effects of retributive justice using Iraqi refugees as their case study. And they use this because after the Iraqi regime was put down, um, retributive justice actually took over instead of this kind of awful regime that was there. They had a more kind of retributive-based justice system. So they wanted to look at retributive justice and look at how it affected people, the sense of healing, etc. So they had a bunch of hypotheses. One is that increased healing, if it occurs, will be associated with increased sociocultural adjustment and social support. Uh, the second one was restoring the belief in a safe and just world, which is retributive, what, which is what retributive justice is supposed to do, will be associated with an increase in the investment in long-term goals and in future orientation, as well as increased post-traumatic growth attitude. Uh, and then the final one is that those who have been affected the most, like like torture survivors who suffered under the regime. And those who meet the criteria for PTSD will report more healing due to the accomplished retributive justice. Basically, the more harm done to the victim, the more healing will be the effects of the accomplished peace. So they took 501 Iraqi refugees from Wayne County, Michigan, and gave them a bunch of measures. These include uh, the healing power of retributive justice scale, the refusal to forgive versus forgiveness scale, the cumulative trauma scale, the media exposure to war in Iraq, family and friends participation in the war scale, torture severity scale, um, the the CAPS-2, which is a post-traumatic stress measure, and the cumul cumulative trauma disorders measure, a health scale, a sociocultural adjustment measure, a futuristic optimistic orientation, a post-traumatic growth attitude scale, a social support scale, and finally a religiosity measure. So lots, lots of measures. So – Basically, what they found is this, is that variable uh, regaining, the variable of regaining self-control and executive function, more control of your life, was the most predictive of positive mental health gains. What we didn't see was improvements in PTSD symptoms, possibly because there were previous traumas or 
there were ongoing traumas, including discrimination and people talking about the war in Iraq. And I think just in general, just because you remove yourself from the traumatic situation and it gets quote unquote fixed doesn't mean it's fixed in your brain. There's plenty of people who have post-traumatic stress about car accidents who no longer drive or about war and they're no longer at war. They're they're at home, safe with their families. It doesn't mean the PTSD goes away. You have to do some real work to make that go away. But it does show us that if you give people control over their lives through this retributive justice, there is a much better chance that their mental health will improve. So there's reasoning behind the idea of retributive justice, even if it's notoriously difficult to put into action. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. Uh, We're going to take a break and then come back and uh, talk to Mike about True Grit. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. (laughs) Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back to talk about the movie now. It's time to talk about True Grit. Uh, Of course, this is a 2010 version directed by the Coens. Uh, so, Mike, what's your history with uh, this version of True Grit? Well, I, I remember being excited about it, mainly because my uh, one of my co-hosts on <clears throat> War Machine vs. War, Shane, is a huge Western and John Wayne fan. And when the trailers start appearing, I guess late summer 2010, I was like, oh, cool, new Coen Brothers Western, Jeff Bridges. That'll, that'll be fun. He's like, oh, yeah, you really need to watch the original. I'm like, I'm not going to fucking do that. What are you out of your mind? I need to. Just, <laughs> that, that just I still to this day bothers him that I've seen this multiple times now and have never had an interest Sam um, watching John Wayne. <laughs> I'm just not a big, you know, there have been John Wayne films that I really like, but I wouldn't say I'm a fan of him as an actor or his screen presence. Well, he's got he's such trying. range, Mike. I don't know how you couldn't be a fan. Come on. Well, we were missing John Goodman, and everybody wanted him to win an Oscar. That's he right. did win one for <laughs> his version of Rooster Cogburn, so who knows? But the Coens, I mean, are an automatic for me at this point, and I think they should be for any you know supposed film lover. I don't yeah. know why you would pass on it. They probably don't work on this scale, I guess, normally, even right. after they won Best Picture. They took their victory lap with Burn After Reading and then came back to this um, right so yeah i was excited about it and uh i was i was happy that it was it appeared to be i guess their version of an action adventure film like yeah. I, I don't know um it, watching it now 
was coming off of this horrendous summer you made me sit through for your goddamn you show. You are welcome. You're welcome, Coens, for making you look even better. You're like, this may be the greatest movie I've ever seen. Felt like the artiest film I've ever seen compared to what I've watched this summer. But it's really fun, and it's really funny. And uh, mm-hmm. apparently that was a big point of emphasis for them, to re-inject the humor that they found in the source material that apparently is missing from that film that I'll never watch. <laughs> so I've been told. Yes. Yes. Uh, much like you, I've never seen the original. Uh, I actually feel like John Wayne is one of those actors that I know so many of his movies, but I've seen like one or two because he's just such a, a fixture as far as Hollywood goes, as far as Hollywood history goes. Uh, but this movie, of course, like I, I was there for opening day because it is a Coen's Coen's brothers Coen's brothers movie, so you know it's it's dependable if nothing else, like you can almost guarantee you're going to have an enjoyable time at the movies with the Coens. Like they've made may one, maybe two movies that aren't rewatchable, you know, which of course you rewatched one of the worst ones for, uh, was it for original remake when you guys looked at the... that's the other podcast I do. And, uh, I realized I sort of put myself in a bind because if I ever want to feature this version of true grit, I will oh, have to watch yeah. the original. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, the one you're referencing, we did the lady killers, right? Which is, uh, for my money is the, the worst, uh, Coen brothers film. And yeah, that, of course, that's the one I covered. <laughs> of course <laughs> you would. But yeah, with the Coens, like you're, you're pretty safe that you're going to get a good film and about half the time you'll get a great film. Um, so it's, it's, pre- it's a pretty safe bet. So I walked in with pretty high expectations and, I really loved this movie when I saw it. It wasn't – it definitely wasn't what I expected. Like when you think of the Coens, this is not the type of movie that jumps into your mind, this kind of action-adventure. And their movies are funny, but they tend to be more quirky funny, whereas this is a bit more laugh-out-loud funny. Like I think this is more for general audience than most of than most of their movies are. Like there's a lot of their movies where you kind of smirk at the humor, like, oh, that's clever, whereas this is genuinely pretty funny and actually has a, a pretty good turn from Matt Damon in this movie that I was not expecting. Like I think he's the one who kind of wowed me more than anybody else because, you know, what everyone else does in this movie is great but kind of expected. Like when you hear the casting, when you hear who's playing Rooster, you know, when you hear when you hear Jeff Bridges, you're like, yeah, that that fits like grumpy old man. Like he can he can play that really well. Uh, But Matt Damon, I think, has the most kind of layered performance in here. And I remember walking out being really impressed with him and also being impressed with Haile Steinfeld. Like she's she's great here and really holds her own against some really good actors. So it was it was not what I was expecting, but also better than what I expected. Well, this is the uh, – I don't know if this is the first instance of you being wrong on this episode. I'd have to go back and listen. On this episode? Uh, on this episode, yeah. <laughs> probably the first on this episode, but mm, not the first time this would, week. <laughs> that, that's probably at least the third time you've been wrong because I'm sure you are wrong before that previous statement. Uh, I'm going to go with the most layered performance as Josh Brolin as Tom Janey. Because uh, he does a lot with many, a little. How many different – how many different – reads can you give on stupid and ignorant <laughs> how many different faces can He's you make so to good. respond so <laughs> good i was really impressed because that's a it's a very thankless part yeah and it is i guess at times the most comedic uh but also has to be a credible threat yeah he's end. a so scary buffoon turn. which yeah. is not an easy role to play um yeah. but to your point on matt damon i think you're right as far as it's mainly his character that provides those laugh out loud moments. And it's the interactions that he has with both, uh, the Cogburn character and Matty Ross, 
like because you get to, you get enough time with these characters. You know, that's that's the biggest difference I think between this and other Cohen works is it's usually a singular story. Like I'm thinking of um, like a, something like Fargo, which right. you see our main character who runs into a lot of people, but she's mainly on her own. And right. this one is a true ensemble, but not in the sense of like burn after reading, which I mentioned where we're cutting to and seeing these various characters cross paths. You're with these three for a lot of the time, like you're that you, and it's just those three on screen interacting. So it's kind of right. stagey in that way, mm-hmm. but it allows you to really develop those characters and laugh at their differences, which on surface level could be, like I said, like burn after reading where it's like Brad Pitt is playing sort of a one note kind of idiot. But there, there's what the Matt Damon LaBeef character here could have been that one note idiot, that pompous, arrogant, yeah. you know, kind of. And through the I first half of the movie, you think he is like for the and then there's kind of a turn. Or you think later he's right. He well, <laughs> you would. <laughs> if you do think that this grown man should be spanking a strange child. <laughs> Or contemplating giving her a kiss. <laughs> that is one of the most disturbing scenes I've seen in a in a basically a comedic film in a long time. Like, what is happening right here? Like, I was actually surprised as as writers they left that in. It's a really it's a really dark scene and draws attention to itself. I was watching this with my wife, and she was watching as she does many of the films. She was doing something else and yep. just walking in out. And I think stops. that's a Brit thing. That's, that's, that's how I watch movies, too. She's like, what are you watching? Well, oh, she whatever. stopped when she heard that line and looked at the screen. I was like, wait, what's going on between this grown man and this child? What What is happening here? Right. I'm like, nothing. He's, he's <laughs> contemplating it. He didn't do it. He's just thinking out loud. No harm, no foul. I'm sure he's not threatening this child at all. <laughs> he's letting her know that her, you know, rather plain appearance has stopped any of those threats. <laughs> and her salty tongue (laughs) which i'm joking but i also want to point out this could have been a really obnoxious child character there's a lot of dialogue here it's very wordy and it could have been like this movie looks like your nightmare on the surface like this looks like does something that mike would automatically hate (laughs) because this is like being this is heightened precociousness here right i mean we have a 14 year old girl on this mission of revenge and she has got like it's like it's not tarantino or kevin smith-esque because it's you know (laughs) there's a movie i would not want to see kevin smith's true grit no thank you i think he was trying to do that with yoga hosers and i would pass on that (laughs) that was his version um but like those films you see certain actors that just kind of fall on their face with that dialogue they get lost in it and she's really good was this her first screen appearance I feel like that's true. I'm not, I'm not, I can look it up, but I, on, it's this is your show. <laughs> I don't, what do you expect in fucking research? Are you kidding me right now? Let's see Shane, the true grit super fan. It was her Warm first. Series. She had done some TV series and some shorts, go. but this was her first feature film. Pretty step. Can you get a Patreon so you can get someone yeah. who just sits in? Doesn't offer. I can barely get you on the show. Are you kidding me? You want me to get someone else? If you want me to get on as fact checker, I will come in and troll the hell out of the proceedings. (laughs) If you're looking to me, you'll be like the guy at the end of Pardon the Interruption. Like, here's everything you got wrong, (laughs) you fucking idiots. And I will be uh, lying through my teeth (laughs) (laughs) because you won't actually have looked it up. Perfect. 
Yeah, but this was her first uh, her first big screen role, which is and, and you mentioned her being so comfortable with the language. That's I think that's the most impressive thing about her performance is with something that wordy, it would be easy for her to get lost. Also playing against what's going to be the most favorite character here with Rooster's reactions to oh, her. Because yeah. it is uh, fish in a barrel for him to just respond to these, you know, pages of <laughs> insults <laughs> or, you know, seeing if he will acquiesce to her in any way. And it's, I really liked because the way they set up the characters, they give him two people from completely different walks of life that Cogburn is going to despise. And because of that, he will at least buddy up with one of them. And it's yep. like, it makes it seem reasonable to the audience that he would take to this 14 year old girl who should completely get on his last nerve. But because of LaBeef, because of Matt Damon, the Texas Ranger, it makes sense. And as the audience, we're, we're like, we want to bond them against this Texan who thinks he's... Because there's no one more annoying than Matt Damon. It's... Can I... Also, I, I don't know if we're jumping ahead in your format here. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> we're already off the, off the page, Are so we? it's fine. All right, cool. We're in uncharted territory here. I also felt like it was a strange and possibly dangerous decision to have Matt Damon bite his tongue during one of the sequences, because that yes. is a joke that could have really blown up in their faces to commit to having him have this <laughs> almost kind of this lisp throughout the yeah. rest of the film, but it works. It I really does. Yeah. I, I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking like kind of outside of the film thinking like, Oh, this, this might be a really bad idea. Like there's a lot of time left. <laughs> like this is not like, Oh, for the last 10 minutes of the movie, he has to talk like that. And it'll be vaguely funny. Like you have to, we got an hour to go. <laughs> and one of our main characters can't really talk anymore. Like, Oh, okay. Uh, but I do like that Matt Damon really, I mean, he really went all out for this performance. Like, I think honestly, it sounds almost silly to say, but this is one of my favorite Matt Damon performances of his career. I think he's legitimately great here. And you usually don't see him playing this dark unless unless he's you know playing a gay serial killer then then he goes extra dark but he's still like no, he's still, he's still charming <laughs> yeah he's like charming and likable but here he's not likable from the jump so i think as the movie goes on and things kind of turn and he becomes a character you depend on with a with a lesser actor that doesn't work at all and you're just rolling your eyes but here it really works when he kind of comes to the rescue near the end of the film do you think that they could have flipped the casting in any way? Like, like, cause it feels like, like I'm wondering if you have some like Josh Brolin, who I think could do the arrogance, could do mm -hmm. the cockiness. Could he, could he sort of have his character show weakness like Matt Damon does? I don't would, know. Would this, sounds really, <laughs> this sounds really harsh, but I don't know if Josh Brolin's likable enough to play this character to make that turn. Like he, has he ever played anyone likable? That is a good question. I don't know. I don't if know that he has. Like he's likably gruff in some performances, but not likable. And I think the Coens take advantage of the fact that Matt Damon is a likable guy and has been a likable actor in Hollywood for a number of years hey, before. This have you movie. checked Twitter? He's not that liked. <laughs> oh well, not this year. Not after the Great Wall, but prior prior to the horrible, horrible, I guess, whitewashing of. Of the Great Wall, I haven't seen the movie, but I I assume it's nobody terrible. on Twitter has either. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, but you take advantage of the fact that you have a likable Hollywood personality in that role. So I think that that turn at the end where he becomes kind of a good guy, you know, we we have that kind of shorthand with him. Where we're always like, we want to like him, which is why it's such a shock 
how he is in the beginning of the film where he's like, you know, essentially hitting on a 14 year old girl and then spanking her because he doesn't do what she doesn't do what he says. And we're like, oh, wait, but it's Matt Damon. I should like him. But he becomes seriously unlikable at the beginning of this film. But that turn, I think that's the reason why it works. You haven't brought up the uh, best performance in this film, which is Barry Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best performance in this movie. Okay. Well, first off, it's perfect casting, right? It it is. (laughs) I mean, the character's name is Lucky Ned Pepper. So <laughs> I noticed that as I was watching. I was like, "Did you just not bother giving him a last name until you cast this, or was it vice versa?" <laughs> like, well, either way, I like it. I like if it was named after him, and I like if you know the Coens pull out the Rolodex and just land on Pepper. I'm like, that's our guy. He's someone that also like is a very specific actor because he has such a unique, uh, dare I say it, kind of weird face. <laughs> He does, look. yeah. And he's someone that, because of that, is going to be a character actor. But I also think that he it's a hard time for him to blend into performances because he's so unique looking. Uh, the best the best thing I Are remember Are you trying to it, dance around calling this man ugly? It's that, I don't think he's, he is. This is why he's a character actor. He's really right. unique looking. You know what? I will call someone ugly. Damn it, since you've thrown it down. Uh, the Gleason boy, Moon, the kid, as listed here. <laughs> Not attractive. Fair. <laughs> Which is probably the worst thing that can be said about your favorite film of all time, Brooklyn, and that he has to be a credible threat. And kudos to him. He was. He came across as a credible threat in that love triangle. I was genuinely shocked when he showed up in this movie. I've totally forgot. I had, I think back then I didn't know who he was. You know, I had no idea. Now, of course, he was in every movie last year, like every movie that did well critically, every movie that did well financially. He was there. So now he's very recognizable. So when he showed up, I kind of paused the movie for a second. I was like, is that? Why do you do that? (laughs) Fast forward. (laughs) (laughs) Look, like the guy watching the ring at the end, staring at the screen. Look, ugliness (laughs) fascinates me. crawls out the TV. (laughs) Ugliness fascinates me. What could I say? I had to stop and be like, who is that? <laughs> but that that seems really interesting to me because it's this I mean, the movie is violent, but it's not gory and it's not over the top, except for that scene. It's a really weird scene in the context of the rest of this movie. Like it's not as if it doesn't fit. It doesn't stand out in that way where you're like, this doesn't belong here. But it is a really shocking moment. From the Coens, who usually don't delve too much into the gruesome, like even the scene in Fargo with the wood chipper, they don't zoom in on that. They don't show it up close. It's like from a distance. And this was like very in your face and very gory and bloody and kind of shocked me as a viewer. I guess it's, it is there as a reminder that this is not just all fun and games for Rooster right. because he is, he is trying to do something there. Probably something that's a little, uh, I guess above his pay grade as far as being like an interrogator or someone that's going to get information because inevitably it is going to come down to little Gleason getting his fingers chopped off <laughs> and Jeff Bridges just cursing and basically having to put the guy who has the information down. And I, uh, yeah, it, it's a little bit of a slap in the face to the audience if you've gotten too comfortable, right. I guess, in this this version of the West, this sort of cinematic version, uh, that there was just a certain degree of ugliness and just a man wailing, <laughs> just screaming like right. there's because uh, you know screaming like Wayne, he had his fingers cut off. Yeah, it's... I assume. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Little Gleason was over emoting there or what he was doing, but I, I'm just <laughs> I hope take I never find out. That's... Yeah. <laughs> 
you're a good little Gleason. I'm, I'm sure you did right by people who have had that happen to them. <laughs> you're good little Gleason. Uh, that's that's definitely going at the top of the show. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm pretty damn skippy that that sequence is probably not in the original. Um, and that may be the selling point for me to actually check it out. Which you know, I actually own the no damn Gleason. Thing. I own it. It's on my shelf behind me, and I still refuse to open it. I don't know if Shane got that for me or what. Probably. I should start a Patreon to get people to send me things that I'll never watch. (laughs) Well, why not? I got a Patreon, and someone paid me to watch Vertigo, so anything's possible, Mike. Oh, geez. Like Kevin Garnett. Like Kevin Garnett. Anything's possible. How dare they make you watch the greatest film of all time? (laughs) You're really suffering for your art. I am. It's, It's a tough life, Mike. It's tough. I must have bought this myself. There's a 50% off tag on it. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a Mike special right there. Oh, well, it's only eight bucks. I might as well. (laughs) See, I got off light. I got to watch Vertigo and didn't have to watch Blair Witch. So I feel like, I feel like I wanted a a charmed life there, Dave. That's right. And you pay the price. It's fantastic. Nothing happens to your fingers, Dave. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Not going back to Kentucky ever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we talked uh, a lot about kind of the acting in the film. I think we've covered that pretty well. I don't think there's really a weak link um, as far as the actors here. Like even in the in the kind of more, you know, the character parts, like they all none of them stand out too much where they kind of steal scenes. But they don't fade into the background either, I think. And I don't know how much of that is due to acting and how much of that is due to the the direction of the Coens, who I'm sure are very – they seem like directors who who control kind of every aspect of the production. And they're very careful with the way they make films. And I think the way the film is balanced between these characters, I, I think it, it really shows as far as, as, far as they go. Uh, but as far as their direction, uh, one of the things I noticed that was really interesting is the way the movie opens – it opens like with this kind of picturesque Western ideal and everything is kind of bathed in golden light. And you feel like this sense of calm as the movie opens. And yet the narration over the top is about something terrible happening. It's about this, this little girl's father being murdered and left for dead. And it, and I like that dichotomy there. Cause it really, you know, like you talked about with the scene with Donald Gleason's fingers being cut off, it's a shock to the audience and it tells us not to get comfortable. And I think the very beginning of the film does that too. It opens with us feeling good and feeling comfortable because of the colors they choose to shoot in. And then they tell us like, no, this is a revenge story. Like this is not, this is not, which this is not the picturesque old West landscape you think of. And I like that, that they started the movie like that. And unlike some of the other revenge stories, we, I guess, somewhat talked about <laughs> in the first segment. Uh, it is one that relies upon uh, the patience, the guidance, and the execution from other parties involved. It is not right. someone who can just pick up a gun because it is a 14-year-old. Right. It's not and, John Wick in the Old West. It's not just I'm going to go take care of this problem. I mean, which, you know, if we get to the second John Wick and it's not very good, I'm open to a time traveling aspect where he goes back to the West. I'm in. <laughs> I'm assuming he goes back to, you know, find his dog and then just goes back a little too far because Keanu doesn't look like the best time traveler uh, as we've seen. Mike, this is you're giving away gold. This is a great That's idea. What I do on my podcast. I, I keep waiting for someone to, you know, buy these spec scripts. All I'm asking for really are Blu-rays iTunes goes. I work cheap. I don't know. I probably wouldn't be a part of the union. Just give me a um, finder's fee. I'm good. I don't sure. need. 
Yeah, and I would be a great director too. I'd be half asleep and be like, "What? Are you, what? Didn't I tell you how to do this?" It'd be the uh, <laughs> Gus Van Sant in uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Just like I'm counting my money. Leave me alone. <laughs> that that may actually be Matt Damon's greatest performance. Is that one bit in Jay? And I Bob do not disagree Back. with that. I do not disagree with that at all. Anyway, uh, what were we talking about? Yeah, the, the little kid <laughs> needs to needs to get people to enact this revenge for her. Yeah. Um, I, my biggest directing, not issue, but I think it's like a interesting choice. It's a clear choice that they wanted to put back in from the original film was the bookend structure of it. You're mentioning, you know, that we mm. open with this act and then we're going to jump ahead to after she survived and she is now 40 something and she's just basically remembering. There's not like a you know this is uh the wrong film to compare it to but there's not like a private ryan moment where mm-hmm. it sort of sums up the lives in any sort of dramatically satisfying way i think it's a great ending yeah but i'm expecting her to meet up on you know rooster's deathbed or labeef to right. talk about his gravesite and they don't do it and i think that's that's a very cohen thing to do they you know there was equal parts probably love and hate for the ending of no country for its yeah. very sort of sopranos-esque ending mm-hmm. where it just cuts to black but that's the director's choice that I think they specifically wanted to do. And I don't know how many other filmmakers would have thought that warranted showing a 40 year old Maddie sort of just very quickly surmising the lives of her and Rooster Cogburn. Yeah. Cause a lot of times she has no information. She doesn't know what happened to Levy, right. for instance. So and, it's it's a weird a, and it's a really dark ending too. the fact that she's, you know, she's missing an arm at this point like it's and the rest of the movie although like has moments of darkness and the humor in it is a little bit cruel it's most of the movie i would say is is pretty light and like laugh out loud moments here and that ending is so so dark and so kind of messed up and like you said you don't it would be one thing if you had this ending and then you got a wrap up you got them meeting again one last time but you don't it's just like oh well he died last year so uh bye i guess like that's, that's the end of the movie and you're like as an audience you're like well shit like it, it totally i love movies that do this that lead you on one path and they're like you see the ending coming and he, and this is just in like a two minute scene you're like okay i know where this is going and that'll be nice and then they completely flip it on you and then just go the other direction and be like actually no sometimes life isn't like that you don't get to meet up with someone on their deathbed just because you shared an important part of your life with them. Sometimes, especially in this situation, the old West people die. He's an old man in the old West. That's what happens. And then the credits roll. And it's like, as an audience member, just kind of sitting there like, Oh, well, that really was not what I was looking for here at the end of the movie. <laughs> but I think on second, I think it's one of those movies that on rewatch, the ending gets better and better because you don't have that shock, you know, it's coming. And it kind of, it kind of makes sense. If you have these two meet up and have some tearful reunion, I don't think it works because that's not the relationship they ever had. Well, we're far more uh, accepting of some sort of narration to kind of usually to start a film. Maybe it's consistent throughout uh, to reflect back on the events. But we also or I think we're a little bit we find it more problematic, as you were saying, where there's not that sense of closure right. with it. We expect the the last scene to be the closure for those people and they don't really live on. And what they're, what they're doing here with that sequence is showing these characters did live on after this. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's something to, especially in these films about that quest for, for vengeance where once there's that culmination of it, that's what now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I think that there's, there's something important about showing, 
you know, the what now factor. There's uh, in the bedroom is a film recently did on my podcast, which doesn't have something like this sequence where you jump ahead in time, but you do read it all over one of the characters' faces, the what now aspect of it. Now we've accomplished this, but now I have to keep living my life and I have to live my life with this being probably the most important event that happened in my life. And I can't really, who do I talk about it with? And that's, that's what's interesting about this ending is there's really no one to talk about that experience of what's she going to tell those two old dudes, what happened to her arm? Like what, what business is it of theirs? (laughs) And, and also, I think, one, one of them wouldn't even stand up, Dave. And I, that's probably a California right, thing. That's right. Where's his manners? But I think in a lesser film, you would have that scene. You would have her telling some random stranger. And this happens in movies all the time where you're like, why is she or why is he talking to this person about that? They have no connection. And I love that we don't have that moment here in the movie. Just ends. Uh, the one shot, though, I think I really, I really love the most in the film. There's always... With the Coens, there's always a couple shots in each movie that are like, my God, that is like artwork. Like, I want to just take a screenshot of that and put it on my wall. And there's a shot after she's been bit um, and he's trying to save her and she's on the horse and he's leading the horse and she's like fading into unconsciousness and it kind of shifts to shadow. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And like, I think I'm, I think I'm wowed about in watching so many movies now, like for this podcast and just in general, is it feels like sometimes when you watch a bunch of bad movies back to back, you feel like everything's been done. Like who even cares anymore? And then you see a shot like that in a new movie and you're like, oh, this we can do new things like there is no there's really no limitation to what we can do on film and that was that shot to me was like a perfect example of something i hadn't seen before and yet invoked these memories of it just reads it reads western perfectly in that moment and it's this movie is is definitely a western but it is like a little bit of an update and a little bit more biting and a little bit more funny but that moment just reads old west to me so beautifully and just it's striking aesthetically too so i just love that moment i think for me it was shooting the cornbread <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a great scene. That's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I love how annoyed that Maddie gets during that scene. Like, are you fucking kidding me? You're just going to waste there's bullets? There's an, uh, an iconic uh, sort of bit of imagery there with Rooster's uh, jacket flung around him to where he can't see to shoot into the air. I mean, it's beautiful scenery, Yeah, but it's a buffoon standing yep. in front of that beautiful shot. That's what works for me. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of the Coens, not only, of course, directed this film, but but wrote the script as well, uh, based on a book. um, And I think I walked into this assuming this was the same story as the John Wayne version. Of course, fuck what I know. I've never seen the movie. I would never know if it was different, but found out in doing like the bare bones research that I do. This is a different story uh, than the John Wayne True Grit. And this is based more on the book. But what did you think of this of this screenplay in general? I think there's certain moments that I like better than others. Like there's, there are a couple of side characters that seem a little too Cohen-esque. One is a guy in a bear outfit. <laughs> what appears. is happening? <laughs> like every time I watch this movie, I'm like, I'm clearly missing something. <laughs> it's so out of nowhere and could not, you're right. Could not be more of a Cohen character. Um, and then there's one of the henchmen. You know, not Ned Pepper and the not. Are you talking and about he, the one who makes animal sounds constantly? Yes. Is he, oh, yeah. God. Horrible. Which I, I understand the practical nature for his little X-Men trait in their gang, I guess. To, his mutant <laughs> power. To maybe find food. I don't know. He helps in their hunting. It's those like those... never brought up, never explained other than people look at him like, well, that's fucking weird. Yeah. And that's... <laughs> 
and that's that's a i mean that's about it uh there's some necessary foreshadowing in the dialogue especially when it comes to the uh, pit that uh maddie falls in mm-hmm. uh there's they talk about snakes Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one element I really like. Uh, one line there where she uh, is asking for Rooster to give her uh, some rope to sort of wrap around to, I guess, you know, co- convince these stupid, stupid creatures that it's another snake on there. <laughs> which I guess is why you have a guy who makes animal noises. So you yeah, there you that. go. He just starts hissing or something or <laughs> has a rattler. I don't know. I love um, how even though you've never seen these movies, you've just inadvertently made a reference to Harry Potter. There is actually a character I? there who Jesus. speaks snake, who speaks oh parcel tongue. So congratulations. So <laughs> you don't even have to try to be a geek, Mike. It just it just comes out. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I had a point there, but then David <laughs> fucking ruined it. <laughs> this <is> nerdery. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a living. It's what I do, Mike. <laughs> But yeah, those are the only parts that really stick out. For the most part, I think it's a, a perfect marriage of the the acting, direction, and the dialogue that it right. doesn't stick out. It's it's very wordy and it's very quotable, but it doesn't feel like dialogue for dialogue's sake, except for you know the snake references yes. and watch out for that hole over there. That, <laughs> that's about By the way, yeah, yeah. I think I mean I, I agree with with everything you said there. I think on paper this should not work. Like if you if you gave like a spec script for this, like given the change of character with Matt Damon's character with Labeef, like that already I'm like, okay, that's that's gonna take a lot of convincing to make that work. And the wordiness of this fourteen year old girl's character, I'm like, this should not work at all. But because of because of the actors they cast and because of the really, really smart script, I do think it really works like kind of shockingly well. Uh besides the the bear character and the animal noise character, which every time I watch it, I'm like, I almost, because the Coens make such good movies, I always feel like if I don't get something, I feel like I'm missing something. And like, no, it's just fucking, we want to be quirky because we're the goddamn Coens. (laughs) Just, that's how they amuse themselves. Yeah. It may be their favorite moment in the film. I feel like it's probably a bet where they made with someone, you know what we could get in this film, a guy in a giant bear suit and no one will fucking bat an eyelash, but they'll pay for this movie. And yeah, it worked. So good for them. Don't, don't question genius. How they, (laughs) they go to their Rolodex and found someone named Pepper. Pepper. (laughs) Mr. Pepper. You will be playing Mr. Pepper. Perfect. Um, And I think the, the production value I think is, absolutely perfect here like there's i don't know where they shot it but there's never a moment where it feels false it doesn't and it feels like an entire working world especially when maddie first gets into town and you see the kind of old west town i've seen this in a lot of movies and a lot of tv shows and sometimes this comes off as really false and you can almost picture the backs of the buildings not even being there and you never feel like that here it feels like everyone is interacting with one another and the town is actually functioning and then when they go out into kind of the the wild west i mean it's just it's beautifully shot like the the scene with maddie trying to get across the river with her horse is just gorgeous and it all feels very real so i was i was really impressed with the production value on this one yeah the only moment it does is probably the uh 
not necessarily the bookends, but certainly when she's introducing the death of her father, hmm. it has that sort of almost picture show quality that you're sure. watching to it. Uh, remind me of uh, like the opening of Magnolia yeah, right. that but way. You, I was like, going to ask, do you story. think that's purposeful though? Like yeah, that, yeah. 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 I'm not going to, I'm unlike you. I'm not going to question the Coens. Like they, they stumbled into this. Uh, I did read, which I'm sure you did too. Cause we do about the same amount of research. That, <laughs> IMDB uh, trivia. Here we come. Yeah, or Wikipedia. Um, yep. so I hope those are two trusted sources. Uh, <laughs> that they were sort of backed into a quarter because of the their lead actress's age on how much they could use her. So that yeah, that really necessitated a lot of their shot selections with her, uh, especially like sort of over the shoulder. And I think it comes into play at the end. You have the the flight back to save her from the snake bite, which also starts to trend into that almost unreal dreamlike quality. But it, it works for that sequence because it's Very from well. her point of view. Yeah. But it, it then calls back to that opening with the death of her father. So, yeah, I agree with you for the most part. I don't think the production value calls attention to itself in the story other than the fact that it all looks like part of that world and reality. It looks great. Uh, those yeah. are the two showiest moments there at the beginning and the end of the film. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the actual rule. Like they they couldn't like have her work like after sundown or there was only a certain amount of hours or something crazy like that. Where Let me tell like, you, we need to really fix the child labor laws, especially when it comes to movie stars. Work these goddamn kids. <laughs> 14 got hour days gig, like everyone else. You know, Fuck yeah. I would have... Uh, I, I will I will submit myself to slave labor practices if it means I'm a fucking movie star. Like <laughs> pretty good trade. Like okay, I have to work 15 hour days, but I'm in a goddamn movie. Like I'm in, and not just like in a movie. I'm in a Coen Brothers movie, and I'm a main character. Like that's that's pretty good. I bet you if you asked her parents, they would have been fine with it. They're like, you know, go ahead, Haley, get to work. <laughs> If not, there was, uh, at the time of this, a 20-something Kentuckian who was willing to try playing a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> I would pay money with the with the pigtails. Like, that's... I would have to change the dialogue, though, because there's no way Matt Damon would say, you're too ugly for me to give you a kiss. He'd been right in there. <laughs> <laughs> he would just be having to try to stop himself, obviously. <laughs> As long as you shaved, I think Matt Damon would be good to go. He'd be fine. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Is that one of your demands as the star? I will not shave. I'll only shave if Casey Affleck's in this part. Otherwise, uh, fuck you, Damon. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, nice little reference to a previous episode of ours. All right. Uh, so now we're at favorite scenes. So what scenes jump to mind maybe that we haven't discussed There's only yet? one. Okay. There's only one right answer here. What's the right answer? It is... Jeff Bridges going off on some fucking story that I don't even remember. I just know he's making a little girl climb a tree to cut down a dead body, which <laughs> for their purposes, they do want to see if it's the man that killed her father and they can sort of end their little adventure. But he is just, I mean, it is, <laughs> it, it, he is totally into it. She clearly is not. She's busy. She's worrying about falling and breaking something. <laughs> her neck. Yes. The tree limb is unstable. <laughs> When she finally accomplishes this, he has this great line, and it's a close-up where he's looking at this dead body. I to the do ground. not know this man. <laughs> it is the movie could have ended right there, and I would have stood up and started cheering. It is is yep. a fantastic sequence. It is a great moment. Yeah, I have that and one written down as well. It's, it's all all the work that goes into something and doesn't matter. And also, <laughs> you know, westerns are all often about passing the time in between gunplay like right. it's there's a lot of downtime and so 
you really usually, you know, you find characters who do not get along in other walks of life. It's something that that terrible Magnificent Seven update kind of skipped over. Like, look at all the crazy cast of characters coming together for this. But there needs to be sequences like this where, where you're just like, God, we and... just shut the fuck up while I'm doing this. Yeah, <laughs> and no... it ends for not. I do not know this man. <laughs> It's the best, and it's such a great line to re- delivery from him. Like just kind of looking down, not even making eye contact with her. I do not know this man. Like, <laughs> kills me every time I watch it. That is definitely on my list as well. Batman or James Bond not say that in one of those films. Why has there never been a sequence where they're just like, you know what? This was a dead end. Right. <laughs> this was a waste of time. All right. Well, next. <laughs> and then of course you get the bear guy that comes. Yeah. Down, well, but... clearly the best moment of the film, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And also I like his scene, like his introductory scene in the courtroom. I think it's it's a fantastic introduction to his character. It tells you pretty much everything you need to know about what he's going to be like for the rest of the film. I mean, you find that he's good at his job, but that he also like, you know, he's not going to he's not going to feel sorry for anybody, you know, and he's he's very willing, even in a courtroom to talk shit like he's not like he will still make his jokes and still. Like, he just can't help himself. Like, it's almost like it just flies out of his mouth without him thinking. So I love that introduction to his character. I actually love uh, his attorney there, who is constantly getting shot down by the (laughs) opposition, the judge. (laughs) And there's constant objections that are sustained. And so he then just has to, he doesn't reword the question, really. He's like, so tell me. And then he has Rooster say exactly what he just said and was objected to as leading. Right. Love it. Love it. Fantastic. Fantastic scene. Um, yeah, I think that covers like most of my favorite scenes unless because we've talked about a lot kind of in a in a very war machine horse uh haphazard way throughout this. I know how to do this so. shit. <laughs> this is yeah. my first rodeo there, here. Therein lies the problem. Yes. <laughs> Dave says, What's your favorite scene? I'm gonna stick five more in other segments <laughs> so I can cover them all. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Uh so let's talk about the theme of retributive justice. So how do you think this applies uh to true grit? It's uh it's an interesting sort of shared experience in this film, isn't it? Because you, you see other people like with Rooster, he has to buy in, in a different way, and mainly with the Pepper character, right? He's going to get so there's some sort of personal history between these two mm-hmm. where he he takes that upon himself. It is still for, I guess, Maddie's cause in a way, but he has to have a personal buy-in. Whereas Matt Damon is not personal for him. And as much as he just thinks that his profession supersedes their sort of petty vengeance, right? Like we're talking about higher ups and all that. And I like the confluence there of all their, I guess, motivations at the end. And it's necessitated because it is a 14 year old girl. Otherwise, you know, she in another in John Wick, she may just off them to get him out of the way. She right. may, <laughs> my vengeance matters more than yours. So I like the shared experience of this particular uh, tale of uh, justice that I don't think you see often. Certainly not in any of the crappy films I named. <laughs> Certainly not. Yeah, I mean, I like the fact that like the movie is essentially led by her. She's your narrator from the very beginning. So I think up until the time, all these three are quote unquote working together for what that's worth uh you do you're kind of in line with her where you're like okay this this man deserves this punishment for what what he did to her father and then you bring in these these other individuals and you start to realize like there's more than one kind of justice 
You know, there's this idea that he's he's willing his justice, uh, Rooster's justice is just kind of like, if you pay me to do it, I'll do it. Whatever. That's fine. And then uh, LaBeef's justice is very different, where it's like kind of like a letter of the law thing. Like, uh, well, this supersedes what happened here. What happened here was wrong. But I still need to take care of my business, and this is my job. Whereas hers is, I guess, like it seems more pure uh, because it's, it's it's personal, like you mentioned. It's this vendetta, and she just wants this man to pay for what he did to to her father. All the other things he did does don't really matter to her, which is where I think sometimes something like retributive justice goes astray because it's so personally focused that it doesn't bring this act into the context of the world and anything else this person has done, whether good or bad, throughout the rest of their life. Well, it's like, well, you did this one act. I need retribution for it. So I think bringing all those people together, it really makes you question kind of what you think about this situation. Like, should he go with the beef? Should he just be shot dead? Should he be brought brought back to be hanged? Like, what's the right the right uh, the right action here? And it's it's a question that I think the movie leaves up in the air purposefully. Yeah, because the way it's designed, Josh Brolin, when we're introduced to this buffoon, it's it really does – you wonder what the value is of possibly one of the other characters who we know and like dying in pursuit of this idiot who <laughs> his neck will probably be slipped by one of – you know at a poker table or one of his you know allies, one of this gang. Like he doesn't have – Or he'll be hung for something else. Life. Like yeah. It's, yeah. He's going to be caught, and so it's just – I think that's where I question it the most is when you're introduced to him, he's not someone who's cunning and it's always going to be one step ahead. You're right. actually wondering how he survived this, this long. long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how did you grow to be an adult? I have no idea. And I think some audience members may, you know, they may take issue with that. Cause I think that usually in these tales of revenge, we want to, you know, we want to see the crazy 88. We want to see our hero go through everyone to get to this very powerful person who exerts right. a lot of influence and can do more damage across the world. And this guy, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe he'll have one or two more crimes, but he's probably going to get shot in the back. He's right. probably it. So it, yeah. it, it, you know, when Maddie loses her arm and if you're an animal lover, when you see her horse shot yeah. for this, you're, you're wondering if all of that, I am at least if it was worth pursuing him. Yeah. If maybe, maybe Labeef was right just to like, to call it a day at one point and be like, you know what? They're gone. Well, like They're gone for now. That's that seems to be the thing that's being says, I'll, you know, maybe a year from now, but we'll get them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. So this movie, I mean, that's kind of where we're going to end our review. And I think this is a fantastic film. Like it's it's one of those that I think, although it got a fair amount of critical praise that year, I still don't think it got quite enough. Like this is this is up there as far as Cohen's movies. Like I think it's well, it's sort of lost in the no country for old men shuffle. Right. It's too soon after that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess, and that that one's sort of their uh, modern uh, masterpiece to most people. But, yeah, uh, until you see Lewin Davis, and then you change your there mind. There you go. So, there. Yeah. So this is up there. I mean, this is probably like top three, top five Cohen's movies, and I think it it's one of those that people tend to forget about a little bit when they talk about oh the Cohens they made this and this and this. You never hear True Grit on that list. So I think it's kind of underappreciated, and people should definitely. Uh, Give it a watch or a second watch if they haven't seen it since 2010. So we are going to pair this with Mike's. I mean, I know you're looking forward to this movie, <laughs> to Edge of Seventeen, uh, starring Haley Steinfeld. Uh, but I will say that True Grit was your idea, 
So it did get you to be able to watch True Grit again. So you should be thankful. I'm thankful that I programmed this episode. Well, I programmed Edge of 17, which led you to True Grit. So you're welcome. Well, well, first, it led me to a lot of questions about yourself. I had never heard of this film. Uh, It's getting, from what I've seen, early, really positive reviews. People who like it are really into it. The poster and the title, the cast did nothing for me, and I wonder. Woody what Harrelson, the come on! You gonna hate on Woody Harrelson? I, I did mention the Hunger Games earlier, right? So it's not you know. He's the best part. Come on. <laughs> the things that he likes to put in his body cost money, so I understand paycheck gigs from Woody. <laughs> Goddamn right, but this I don't think is like this is not a movie. Even if it does well, it's not gonna make. Sure as shit, it's not going to make Hunger Games money. So this is not a paycheck gig. So open your mind a little bit, Mike. This might be great. Get me uh, some of Woody's stuff, and I will. (laughs) It's certainly going to be better than the usual Sundance Fair. You know, the last couple years have been a little rough on Sundance winners. So I think it'll be it'll be above that. That's my high barber. Yes, yes, not terrible. You'll enjoy it more than me and Earl and the Dying Girl. And Thanks. the witch. <laughs> I guarantee you'll like it better than both of those movies. And I haven't seen it yet, but I can pretty much guarantee. Because I don't think it's going to be the worst movie of the year. So. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we talk a lot of shit about Sundance, but there was also Swiss Army Man. With mm-hmm. Both of I, you know, both of us really enjoyed. So I hope it's more like and that. And did we Although, cover that on this show? Nope. <laughs> but on War Machine vs. War Horse, we... Uh, nobody up- listens to that. Nope, nope. <laughs> I gave I gave you your chance. <laughs> I'm glad you reminded your audience of a better, more cultured film podcast over uh, there. Yes, very cultured. Go listen to their episode <laughs> on denial and find out just how cultured <laughs> Mike and Chris Maynard are. But yeah, I'm, I believe I, I believe we do come out of that one uh, not denying the Holocaust. Ooh, I think that's the. There's another high from. goal. <laughs> It was a hot take on our part. Yeah. Nope. Think that happened. That's. I think that <laughs> happened. <laughs> According to my research, Wikipedia. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That that did happen. That's the thing. Yes. Absolutely. All right. So, speaking of War Machine versus Warhorse, what's coming up on War Machine versus Warhorse that you'd like to publicize? Well, uh, I mentioned the Manchester by the Sea episode. Whenever you know, in limited release that comes my way, you'll be on for, for so HUD like and Rain Man. January, 2018. Sure. <laughs> sure. You know, there's a long lead time to catch up on those two films. Right. Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm looking forward to La La Land and I have yet to determine what to pair that with. Uh, Miss Sloan. Uh, I'm going to hashtag that gun control and pick up an entirely new audience of lovable listeners. I'm sure. Uh, we're going to do bowling for Columbine and runaway jury. So that's wow. some of the stuff that's uh, coming up and uh, we will not do a passengers episode. That's <laughs> 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 my promise to you. And as always, you should contact Mike on Twitter. So he gets his notifications at war machine horse. Yeah. Tell me what you think about gun control. Um, <laughs> I probably have less of an opinion on that than I do. If you said a negative word about Jessica Chastain, then that, then I will be blocked. acquiring a gun. <laughs> <laughs> blocked. I will not speak to you anymore. We're done. And I also do a podcast that you alluded to that I always forget to promote called Original Remake, where I can assure you for the time being, we will not be covering the versions of True Grit. But we will be doing a Passengers-themed episode, since for that show, we, I don't actually have to watch this bullshit in the releases. 
And uh, I'm going to be uh, talking with my co-host, Peter, about Moon and Oblivion, which uh, is kind of a stretch because I think Oblivion with Tom Cruise was a remake of every sci-fi film ever made. <laughs> it's like the greatest hits cover band of every every possible music or movie form. So, yeah, that's what's coming coming up on that show. Nice. And you can, oh, tweet at Original Remake with all of your complaints because I actually don't control that social media account. So <laughs> Definitely tweet that one. So when does Hyro get into town? Or is he already there? I don't know. I haven't asked. Um, I got shit to do. <laughs> got Sheila bitching online about me being on another hiatus because I haven't released an episode in a week. Seven days. <laughs> I think my earlier... How dare uh, you? My earlier output has screwed me because people were yep. like, what are you doing? I was like... Um, Living my whatever, life? Working? Being <laughs> what married? every other podcaster does. <laughs> Once a week. <laughs> I don't know, Mike. Not me. <laughs> yeah, you. I don't know why. Because of you, you motherfucker. Just... <laughs> it was your idea. It caused you nothing but heartache. It's true. <laughs> God damn it. But on, on the bright side, it's caused you nothing but heartache, too. That's true. So. <laughs> Blackwashing <laughs> is okay, Mike. It's fine. <laughs> Especially if it's Idris Elba. Just elbow wash everything. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm going to hopefully get that opportunity to elbow wash myself one day. <laughs> Never meet the guy. <laughs> uh, you and me both, my friend. You and me both. I'll actually introduce the right movie this time. And just flip it. <laughs> Re-promote Gone and Baby And now Gone. we're talking about Gone Baby Gone. What? No, we're not.